And now the turn. All right, I need to take a class in basic microphone usage. Um, for those of you who are younger, there may never have been a day when you didn't use email or texting. But for many of us, they have come as new parts of our lives through the years, correct? I wrote my first email probably about 30, does that sound right, about 30 years ago? In the late 1980s, early 1990s? Well, I was young and spunky. <laughs> and probably my first text in the early, in the late 1990s. Um, and there was a learning curve to emails and then texting, correct? You had to kind of learn how to do it. And there are some rules about emailing and texting which you're supposed to observe. They're unwritten rules. There's not, there's not an official guideline for texting. There's not an official guideline for emails. But there are some unwritten rules about emails and texting. Can anybody tell me what one of those unwritten rules might be? Just shout it out. Not all caps. Let me say it like I'm speaking in all caps. Not all caps. When you get a, an email or a text that is in all caps, it feels like you're being assaulted. It is harsh. And so one of the first things that you learn is to tone it down in all caps, unless it's something of a dire emergency, is considered just kind of rude and, uh, and alarming. So that's one, and we'll get back to that one. Another one. Another rule. Okay. See, and here's where rules between emails and texting change some, because in emails, rules of grammar somewhat apply, but to texting, all, all bets are off. So, uh, yeah. Great. Think of your audience before you send the, before you hit the send button. Uh, another thing that would go along with that, besides thinking of your audience, is think about what you've written before you hit the send button. Many of us have sent an email or a text, and two seconds after we hit the send button, we are regretting what we did. Am I correct about that? You know, when I used to, get upset with people before the days of email, I would just write a letter. And then I would take that letter and I'd stick it in my bottom drawer of my desk. And then I'd go back to that letter in the next couple of weeks and if I feel f still felt the same way and felt that the response that I made was the right response, I might send it. But I don't think I ever did. The problem with email and texting is that you can send it immediately while your rankers are rankled. And so, it is super important just to pull back. Just as statement of acknowledgement is quite often the best way to respond immediately to something that might be, uh, might be upsetting. Just pull back. Okay, another unwritten rule. Okay, okay, that would again go along with emails and texting. There's a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Don't say CV attached. 
You know what? What is the fun of sending emails and texts without saying see the attachment and then forgetting to attach? Yeah. Okay. Other unwritten rules? Hey, friend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There are all sorts of different, all sorts of different acronyms, all sorts of different abbreviations that we use when we email or text. Okay. Somebody else. And now with, yeah. And now with emojis, they've been around a hundred years. But with emojis, that uh, you don't have to use letters at all if you don't want to. All right. Somebody else. Yeah, Jim. Super important rule of texting, emailing too, but testing, texting, is to always proofread because autocorrect will drive you mad. Yeah. And sometimes you end up saying very inappropriate things uh, because you didn't proof. Okay, somebody else. Here's one that I think is a big one. There is... N I won't say no room, but there is little room for sarcasm in a text or an email because, hear me, the person reading your email or text doesn't know you're being sarcastic. I don't know how many people have had problems with other people because they misinterpreted what was said in an email or a text because somebody thought they were being cute. They were just being funny, ha ha, but it offended the person who got the, who received it. So, just don't be sarcastic. Say what you mean. Say it. Best and easiest way to do it. Any other unwritten ones? Yes. Don't text and drive. Okay, that's pretty well written, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, good rule. Texicated? Intoxicated. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. The reason I share these with you is that, or we talk about this a little bit, Paul has written this letter to the Galatians. And he does this in several of the letters that he writes. Uh, he uses somebody else to actually write the letter. Uh, amanuensis. Uh, the Latin word for the secretary who does the writing uh, of the letter. And Paul uses them because Paul seems to have a, a problem with his writing. Now, there are all sorts of conjectures as to what the problem is. Some people say Paul has really bad eyesight. Uh, other people say that Paul doesn't, doesn't write well because of arthritis or some other issue. Here's my own personal thought. If you have been in turmoil as often as Paul has, if you've been under arrest as often as Paul has, if you've received as many beatings as Paul has, there's a really good chance your fingers don't work quite right anymore. And so Paul has somebody else write the letters, but he will occasionally, if it's a special greeting or something important he wants to say, he will take over and write. And the passage that we have in Galatians today is one of those passages. Uh, but before we get that, just this word about the letter to the Galatians itself. You know how the, the letter to the Philippians is just so upbeat and happy, and Paul says to the Philippians, you're the greatest people ever. I'm so thankful to God for you. I love you to pieces. 
That's not how he approaches the Galatians. He's in a bit of a mood as he writes this letter. The Galatians have disappointed him um, severely, and, uh, and he is telling them about it. What's happened is, the region of Galatia is a Gentile area, and Paul came in with the gospel, and folks received the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ and became Christians. Not long after they became Christians, there were a group of folks who kind of followed Paul around who came into the area to help correct Paul's teaching a little bit. They, they're, they're called Judaizers. And they would go where Paul had already been, and they would say to the people, Now, Paul preached a wonderful gospel to you. He said all sorts of good things to you, but he missed out one very important part. Paul didn't tell you that before you could become a good Christian, you had to become Jewish first. And so the Judaizers came into Galatia, and before long, the churches in Galatia were turning their backs on the original message they heard, and men were getting uh, circumcised, and women were um, following the dietary rules, and uh, folks were following the Sabbath rules because they were fitting into the Jewish culture because that was the way you became a Christian, according to uh, the Judaizers. Of course, the biggest of these issues as far as people were thinking was circumcision, We all know what circumcision is. Boys, males, are born with some extra skin on their penis, and there is a little surgery that cuts off that foreskin, and that's called circumcision. Most of the world in Paul's day didn't practice that, uh, but Jewish folks, it was foundational to their religious faith. And so for a Jew to be Jewish, he had to be circumcised. Women had other things they had to go through, but the man had to be circumcised. Didn't matter if he was a baby, didn't matter if he was 50 years old. So you can imagine that there was some balking on the part of men when they wanted to become Christians and were learning that first they had to go through this surgery. It wasn't necessarily something they wanted to do, but the Judaizers were adamant, you have to do this if you want to be a good Christian. And so the Galatians had succumbed to that teaching and were fully involved in the preaching of a gospel that called for people to become one thing before they became another. And so Paul has written about that throughout the book of Galatians, and it's been intense. But here he comes to the very last paragraph, and here's what Paul says. Um, in the, on your bulletin, the scripture passage says, Look at the large-sized letters I'm writing in my own hand. In the Message Bible, the same little passage says this. Now in these sentences, the last sentences of the letter, I want to emphasize in the bold scrawls of my personal handwriting the immense importance of what I have written to you. In other words, I'm taking the pen. It hurts my hands to use it. I write terribly. It's almost not legible. But I feel like I need to do this to emphasize to you what I've said is what I mean and what I'm about to say is really important. 
Now, in these last sentences, I want to emphasize in the bold scrawls of my personal handwriting the immense importance of what I have written to you. These people who are attempting to force the ways of circumcision on you have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good before others, lacking the courage to live by a faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. All their talk about the law is gas. They themselves don't keep the law, and they are highly selective in the laws they do observe. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast of their success in recruiting you to their side. That is contemptible. For my part, I am going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others, and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all of this? It is not what you and I do, submit to circumcision or reject circumcision. It is what God is doing. And He is creating something totally new. A free life. All who walk by this standard are the true Israel of God, His chosen people. Peace and mercy to them. You know, I really don't know if Paul meant to write that much once he got going, because I'm assuming it really hurt his hands to do it. But there was so much important stuff to say. And out of Paul's handwritten ending to that letter, I note just a couple of things. I note that just because religious people say something doesn't mean it's so. Ooh, let me repeat that. Just because religious people say something doesn't mean it's so. Circumcision was this huge issue in the early church. Paul has a huge argument with Peter about it. Paul argues with Paul about it. But when it comes right down to it, Circumcision or no circumcision, this rule or that rule, this way of doing things or that way of doing things, mean nothing. Religious gyrations, religious traditions, religious stuff means nothing in the big picture. In the picture, big picture, what matters is this. God is at work. Love God with what you have. All that you have. Love people. Discover your way. Just because religious people say it's so doesn't mean it is. And it is perfectly okay to say, I disagree. That doesn't match how I believe. That doesn't match how I understand how God works. Now for us, we understand that the to follow God means to follow Christ, and to follow Christ means to love one another, to forgive each other, to practice kindness, to be merciful, to be accepting, to be gracious. The second thing I notice in this passage is Paul is really getting after the Judaizers for putting substance for putting appearance over substance. 
He says, these Judaizers come and they tell you all to get circumcised, but the only reason they're doing it is so they can write it down in a book somewhere. They just want to be able to put it on their attendance charts. They want to be able to say, we have these many men who have been circumcised and this many folks who have decided to become like us before they become like Christ. It's for their own statistics. It's for their appearance sake and not for the substance of what matters. I uh, spent a lot of time being a camp pastor in my earlier days. Fred, I'm sure you've been there. Jerry, I'm sure you've been there. When you're a camp pastor, there's usually a person above you in a camp. Like, let's say you have a camp for junior hires or senior hires or, or middlers. There's usually a camp dean or the guy who runs the camp, the woman who runs the camp, and then you're the camp pastor and you're the ones who design the service. The one thing you don't get to design as the camp pastor is the number of invitations that you give during a camping session. And I always balked at invitations during camping sessions. I always thought it would be good to have one a week, um, but I know in many camps I'd go to, I had to do one every single night. And based on the emotion of the camp and the way things ran hot and cold, uh, those could be pretty amazing moments. Um, when you have a bunch of middlers, fourth through sixth graders, and you do invitations every morning and every evening, and one of the evenings there's a terrific thunderstorm right during the service, you get everybody saved. Everybody. For the third or fourth time that week. So, I would question the person in charge of the camp and I would say, why do we have to do invitations every day? It doesn't make sense to me. Our calling is different than that. And they would say to me, well, we're not really in charge of that. The, the camp directors, the people who run the camp, they're the ones who set that policy. So I would go to the camp director and I would say, why do we need to do an invitation at every service? Doing one a week sounds really smart. But can I tell you this to get away from that? Doing a camp where we had one invitation on a Thursday evening, and I worked really hard to make it as unemotional as possible. Declaration of the gospel, prayer walk, call to commitment. Boom. Well, there was a young person who wanted to sing. And I said, that's great. I didn't know what their song was before they sang, and as we were around the kind of campfire, they started to sing the song about how they'd been fighting with their mother. And then their mother got into a car and drove away from home and was killed in a car wreck. And as soon as that song happened, I thought to myself, I don't think this is going to be an unemotional um, consecration service. Uh, because emotions run so high in the midst of the camp experience. But anyway, I would go to the camp directors and I'd say, why do we have to have so many invitations? And they would say... We need them so that when we make our reports to the people who make donations, we can say, this many kids were saved. This many kids rededicated their lives. This many kids were called to mission work or whatever it was. You know, they had a book of statistics. And it was important for them to fill that book of statistics so that their donors knew that they were giving to something that was worthwhile. They were so focused on the appearance of it all that maybe missed some of the substance. 
Third thing that I notice in this, in Paul's response to the Judaizers and to the Galatians in accepting the Judaizers, is this. What matters above all else? What matters isn't the traditions, it's not the songs, it's, it's not the way you do worship, it's not the clothes you wear. What matters is that God is at work. And you have been invited to join God as God recreates the world in God's image. Amen.